You're listening to a conversation with composer and flutist extraordinaire, Valerie Coleman. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and I'm here in conversation with Valerie Coleman. You're listening to Valerie Coleman's 7 O'Clock Shout, performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra under the direction of Yannick Nézé-Séguin. It's amazing. We talked to you and the other members of, of Imani Wins 10 years ago. In that conversation, we were mostly focused on all of you as interpreters and as curators of this exciting new repertoire for, for Wind Quintet. So I want to get back to that beginning and how music first hit you. It was just very organic and just a part of my playtime as a child. And so for my mom, she is somebody who has run a daycare for over 55 years now. <laughs> so I grew up in a daycare setting, even though she was the, the teacher to all of these kids, I was in that group. And in our home life, she had certain things that were already out in the living room. And so we had this old Casio, it wasn't even a Casio, it was like this kind of organ. I think it might've come from a secondhand store. It sounded like a Hammond. <laughs> it did, and but it wasn't a Hammond. It was just something that was like this cheap, cheap knockoff. And so I would plunk on the keys and that's what me and my sisters would do. We would just sit there maybe for five, 10 minutes, but I found that my playtime on the instrument just became these whole sessions that would last for like two hours. It must have been seven or eight or so. Yeah, that sounds about right because that I was born in 1970 <laughs> and cassette players were really starting to um, become the thing to get kids at the time. It was kind of the Elmo doll of, <laughs> of the late 70s. So it, it seemed like for two Christmases in a row, we got cassette players. That just opened up a world. I, I would sit there and play down a melody and record it on the, the Casio, I mean, on the cassette player, and then play it back and then try to play another melody or sing on top of that. It was kind of this looping back and forth between two cassette players. You know, it, it started off with just, you know, three or four layers, but then it started to get like 10 and 12 layers of loops. And, you know, for those of you out there who know about cassette players, you know that the sound warps with each playback and record. I thought it was the greatest thing. It was an invention to me to be able to hear back like 10 to 12 layers, but the warp sounds, I didn't pay any focus to it. Anybody walking by would say that it's, you know, it's a horror show. <laughs> In a way, I think that that was a very taste to symphonic writing that was on the table for me. And I didn't realize it at the time, as a matter of fact, I'm just realizing it now because developing your inner ear to write for symphonic works means that you have to hear contrapuntal lines and a multitude of them and to see how they interlock and all the colors that come from that. So at the time, I, I didn't have all the colors I wanted per se, but it did help me to develop an inner ear for contrapuntal lines. When I started to play the flute, 
that really started to inform how I wrote. Because after a while, when you're starting to write for yourself and you know what you want to hear and you know what you want to play and you know what sits well on the instrument, those things start to really impact. And when you start to work with an ensemble that you perform with and you begin to know the dynamics of of the group and the personalities and the tendencies and all those things, And as you're playing along with them, you notice there's certain moments where um, the energy can spike within a phrase. Um, You learn both orchestration and also how to write in a way that allows for a musician to like buy into your musical idea and make it their own. The fact that you play an instrument that is contingent upon breath gives a sense of phrasing perhaps. And maybe, you know, the music breathes in a kind of a larger arc, probably because subconsciously, that's how you physically make sounds so that when you abstractly create them for other people, that's part of it. Absolutely. And I would even go as far as saying that um, there are times where that ability to breathe also allows some perception into dynamic contrast and, and making note of that. But there are always those times where you're writing for a wind group. And if you step away from your instrument within the writing process, sometimes you can lose that perspective. There's many times where I've written for Monica Ellis, for those of you who know her, she's the bassoonist of Imani Winds. And she's that powerhouse that will spoil you as you write for her because you you know she can play anything. Because of that, she was my muse and has been my muse for many, many years. And I would write these long phrases. And yes, she would have places to breathe, but she didn't have the chop breaks, meaning the time that she could get the bassoon off the face (laughs) and and rest the chops. You know, there were times where she was just like, Valerie, (laughs) you gotta, you gotta give a sister a break sometime in the music. You know, look at this. I got, I got four pages and I don't have a rest. (laughs) (laughs) And and I say to her, Monica, it's because you sound so good. (laughs) But yeah, those those things do inform for sure. I I love to create lines that do breathe and feel good to the soul. I'm not somebody who writes based on the intellectual side of, of composition, but rather on the side of addressing what it is within all of us, the shared qualities of, of human behavior, um, what feeds the soul, what identifies the issues or all the complexities within ourselves as human beings. That is mainly my focus. And so breathing goes right into that. I'm wondering when that translated into you seeing and hearing other musicians perform and saying, hmm, I want to write for them or I want to play music with them or I want to do that. When did this become, rather than an individual thing you did by yourself, turn into a social thing? There's many layers to this because it's all about the amount of exposure that a student gets. I was raised in the West End of Louisville, Kentucky which is not far away from where Breonna Taylor um, was killed. And it's also not far away from where Muhammad Ali lived. And so my interactions with music were based on what I would do with my sisters. We would sing three-part harmony, you know, as kids. That was what we would do. And that was my social outlet. 
And my exposure to classical music was through the radio, WUOL-FM, that's the University of Louisville's um, classical radio station. I would sit in the backyard and just listen to Dvorak and Copeland and all the hits and watch the sun go down. That was my exposure to vicariously enjoying a communal classical music. It wasn't really until I got into public school in the fourth grade when the band director came to our classroom and handed out permission slips and said, who wants to play in the band? And I got that permission slip signed, eagerly signed and brought it back in. (laughs) I was like, let's get started. Let's go. I can't even remember the number of flutists. It must have been four or five flutists. We're all sitting there trying to make a sound out of our head joints. Even at that level of being a novice, the idea of all of us just sitting there trying to attain the same goal of making a sound of our instruments was the start of something big for me. I'm in love with the idea of collaborating and making music within a chamber ensemble. And so band, orchestra, Louisville Youth Orchestra, middle school band, high school band, all of those things, that was my experience. And it was because of um, music being in the public schools. But before that, it was really just me and my sisters, and we made our music together in our own way. Making music with other people is this very, very social act. Composing music, in some ways, is very anti-social, right? <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're by yourself, you're writing this thing down, and I, ideally, you know, you want to turn this anti-social thing into something social, ideally. But I'm curious, you know, the composing, the composing bug, you were writing things down somehow, but I imagine when you first started writing things down, you had no idea how music notation worked. So you came up with things that would help you remember to recreate it. So I'm wondering how that became part of your process of making music. After doing these um, multi-track recordings, these warped multi-tracks, the idea of, of writing came to me, although I had no idea about Mozart and Beethoven, you know, the composers that young children learn about early on as being composers. That notion of actually notating something I felt at the time was uniquely my own. I didn't know the word composer. I didn't identify with that. It just wasn't there. All I knew was that I had to keep and document what I was doing. Um, My notation was circles and squares and triangles and, you know, any kind of crude hieroglyphics that I could make. um, That's what I did. You know, when I went back to it, it wasn't very organized at all. It was just basically a sketch on a paper, much like a stick figure of how a person, you know, of a six-year-old would draw. We've been talking about you know, classical music, hearing classical music on the radio during Forjot, during Copeland, and then yeah. we're learning about Mozart and Beethoven and all these people. Um, what about other kinds of music growing up? You, you were doing three-part mm. harmony. What were those three-part harmony things? Oh, come on now. We're talking about emotions and the bar case, <laughs> earth, wind, and fire, all of those. Okay. You know, you know, DeBarge, all of that stuff, the Jackson Five. <laughs> And we saw it. We were all informed by um, American Bandstand. We were all informed by Soul Train and all of those shows that would come on um, Saturday midday. 
and you know we would do the dance moves and all of that stuff but somehow or another there was really no distinction between that particular genre and that way of life with creating music on the keyboard. There was no distinction whatsoever. So it all blended in together. And as a matter of fact, when I started band in elementary school, there was a large number of people of African descent, um, Black folk kids like me that were in band. And what we would do in middle school as we were sitting there and we were going through ear training, I had a great ear training teacher in middle school, a great band teacher, because that's what he would focus on. He would focus on us identifying intervals and where notes are on the scale. But during that time, me and my friends, we would just sit and write down by letter names, the letter names to each song that we would hear on the radio. So if it was, um, let's groove tonight, we would write it down. We didn't have the rhythmic notation. We just knew that those were the notes. When our teacher wasn't looking, we were playing those songs on our instruments. You know, we were just kind of sneaking around with that. But that's how students um, inform themselves. You know, it, a child, when you're raising a child, and I say this because I'm a mom, um, they don't have a user's manual. But in their own way, they are their own user's manual. They, they kind of guide you in where to guide them. And I think that that's the same thing with students who are learning music. They kind of guide you a little bit. So I'm curious, you know, you heard these songs and you did these things in band, but then there were these names that were given to you from on high, as it were. Uh, and yeah, Copeland was still alive at that point. But mm-hmm. still, I mean, very far removed from the life of a little girl in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so, you know, how did you come to feel like this was for you? This relates to you. You can be part of this. I never doubted it for a moment. I never even posed that question. It was just there and it was automatically the identity that was manifest. What I can identify is that moment where things just start to lock into place for me. But it wasn't necessarily that I would fit into a demographic of being a composer. I already knew that um, subconsciously. I mean, there was also a time where I realized that I couldn't possibly be a composer. And that was when I was in college. Up until the point of my graduating from high school, I always just knew that composing and arranging was what I did. My summer projects when I was a teen sitting in the backyard, in that same backyard that I listened to symphonies and, and wrote my own. And they weren't very good, but it didn't stop me. <laughs> and it took me the summer to do that and it helped me to, to train my inner ear. But when I got into college, that's when I noticed the demographic. I noticed the demographic because at the time I was made to feel like I did not belong. I started to recognize, whoa, maybe composers are supposed to be white male and not black female. And so I went through school thinking that very thing. And I stopped calling myself a composer, but I kept writing. (laughs) It was almost as if the idea of composing or being a composer was this mantle that I was undeserving of. Even years after that, it wasn't until I got my, um, got a review where the critic had called me a composer, I started to think, whoa, (laughs) maybe I am a composer. Maybe this is, maybe this is what I've been doing this whole time. And now it's just up to me to embrace that title. I'm wondering when it first happened that something you wrote 
was played by someone else. Well, I did that all through um, elementary school when we were writing down songs. Lisa Lisa Lost in Emotion. I wrote that for <laughs> for for the pet band in high school. So um, that moment of truth for me, though, happened when I was at Tanglewood, Boston University Tanglewood Institute, my very first summer outside of the state of Kentucky. And I brought with me a flute trio. It was a master class that I was there for that had Leon Baizy and Dorio Dwyer. They were the principals of the BSO at the time. I remember bringing that flute trio up on the stage and I brought my friends with me. And Dorio Dwyer, she didn't comment on whether it was good or bad. She just said, okay, let's, let's work on this for a little bit. The whole session for that day was working on that trio. And that moment, I think, was the life changer for me. Because in her taking the time to go through the music as if it were not a, a student composition, but an actual piece of music to dissect and, and talk about interpretation, that was such a significant validation to me that allowed me to move forward. And it also was the thing that made me apply to Boston University, too. It all comes together in, in that way. But yeah, that's educators. It's so important that they encourage and not discourage in what they do. And sometimes we have to be really, really careful. There's a difference between tough love and destruction. <laughs> Oh, that's so true. I didn't know that story of you, and I was expecting a story that happened later on. You were playing music, you were writing music, and then all of a sudden, there started to be pieces that you wrote that wound up being played by other people. I mean, the pieces I'm thinking of immediately are Danza de la Mariposa and Wish Sonatine. Now these pieces have been played by so many different people. And I wonder, in my mind, if Valerie the flutist hearing all these other flutists play it. It's kind of like motherhood in a way, right? It's like, you know, your kid goes out and you're worried when they're going to come home. You know, you write this piece, it has to have a life of its own. Frank, let me tell you, being a mom of a six-year-old right now, I'm going to have a hard time practicing what I preach. <laughs> yeah. I've always looked at musical compositions as, as my, my children. We all do as creators. Nothing gives us more joy than to see our compositions go out into the world and make their own mark. They're a piece of paper, their music, their gestures, their sounds, but yet they function as people out in the world. How they make an impact, how they encourage or discourage people, how they have the potential of sending messages, it's all there. And so for me, once a piece is written like a Danza de la Mariposa or a Wish Sonatine, and it goes out into the world and somebody picks it up and makes it their own, that is the highest compliment that I could ever feel towards that piece. And it's the same thing with Imani Wins too. I retired from the group in 2018. And to me, as I'm leaving, I'm thinking, I hope this group lasts the test of time. Long after we all get older, you know, maybe there's a new group of Imanis that come in but I'm not looking at it as a legacy, but rather as the impact that it has and that it is its own living entity. I don't know if it's so much letting go as much as it is just loving it enough to um, set it off into the world and giving it room to grow and find its own path. 
that's very beautifully said. And, you know, we'll talk in 10 years when your daughter is 16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, she's staying home. <laughs> you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> You're not dating. <laughs> uh, hopefully 10 years from now, we can go outside again, right? That'll be. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, oh, not, we're not going to go there just yet. But, um, <laughs> you know, the wind quintet, since it's five very different sonorities, is very different from the string quartet, say, or the sax quartet, or even the brass quintet. It really is sort of an orchestra in miniature. Yeah, it's miraculous. For those of you who want to write for wind quintet, please do it and find out what the miracle is all about. The miracle is in the fact that every two instruments that you put together blend in a beautiful, distinct way. And the palette that comes from that allows a person to transform what is just woodwinds and in, in, in French horn into a jazz band, an orchestra, a full marching band, a full rock band, if you want. The colors are endless. And what even makes it more complex and beautiful is the fact that everybody produces their own sound in a different way. And so it is not only the skill of the musician to be able to get a flute articulation to sound like the attack of a bassoon, but it's also in the skill of a composer to know when to challenge that moment as well. I'm in love with writing for Wind Quintet because I've been spoiled by the very best. I have to say, when Jeff Scott and Monica Ellis, they come together, they can lay down the groove, like the top rhythm section in the world. So I know that I can write for drums with just the two of them involved. I guess for those who are creating for Wind Quintet out there, I would even say, try to keep some common sense going about breathing. Don't do what I do and, and write without rest. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us have that problem. <laughs> Playing in a Wind Quintet and writing for them and working with all this repertoire and all these different composers in that particular ensemble, it was a laboratory for you, I would dare say, that has made you has given you plenty of potential now to be writing for the orchestra. I completely agree. And I do kind of find that there are times where I have to resist um, in my writings for orchestra to be woodwind heavy. <laughs> Because that's my my natural go-to, the idea of all the different blends and challenges of the different voices coming together, even contrapuntally, does inform how I write for the orchestra as a whole. I'm still learning. So let's talk about that very first writing for orchestra. You wrote this piece that, that sort of became a signature piece for Imani, Mojo, which means unity. And it began as a choral piece. Then it became a wind quintet. Then later on, it became a wind band piece, and then it became a, a larger orchestra piece. I had started this organization when I was a student at the New School. It started off as a, a work for women's choir. It was the classical department and the jazz department, and we were just trying to figure out ways of making an impact um, in our you know, larger New York community. And so the holidays rolled around and Kwanzaa-like songs came into my head and Umoja was one of them. It started off with the women's choir. And, you know, if you can imagine us swaying back and forth inspired by Sweet Honey and the Rock, that's how Umoja came about. It wasn't shortly after that Imani Winds was formed. I had started Imani Winds and one of our first gigs was for a wedding. 
it was for this um, actor who was very much into the Black actors community. And so he basically wined a wedding where everybody was wearing various African culture um, identity and themes to it. And so he asked me to write a piece for that or for us to play that kind of music. So I was just like, okay, I'll just go ahead and make Umoja an arrangement for that. And so we learned it. And I remember initially the reaction of the group was that it was really simplistic. But then when we played it in the wedding and people stopped their conversations to listen to the tune, I remember Monica saying at the end of the wedding, Valerie, that piece works. <laughs> <laughs> Umoja in that incarnation is a minute and a half. You have the lyrics, you have the melody, the body, and you have the hook. And it's just that back and forth, back and forth. Very simple. Over the years, this piece became Umoja, I mean, became Imani Wynn's staple. And when Philadelphia Orchestra wanted me to create a world around it, they said, all right, we'll commission you for 10 minutes of music. And I'm like, okay, Umoja is like only a minute and a half. How's that going to work? And not only that, Umoja is staunchly D major. You know, you have the subdominant, you have the dominant, and then it's just, you know, D major. Nothing else to it. No modulations, no challenges to the tonal center. I knew that with the Philadelphia Orchestra one, I had to break my habit, break my mindset of, of a piece that has been with me for two decades. How do you create a world around a piece that has been a part of your fiber for that long? I had to divorce myself from Umoja and not think about it, but instead think about all the things that Umoja stands for, the unity aspect, um, the feeling of outpouring in song, the ostinato percussion aspects of it, and create music separate from that and then see how it can be melded and merged from that point on. So that new music had to have its own identity. So this incarnation of Umoja for orchestra does take the melody that we that we know and stretch it out. It does allow for other segments to happen, a, a journey away from the melody. So I think that adventure into writing for orchestra was a really great foray lesson for me. Now, the new piece that you wrote for the Philadelphia Orchestra, Seven O'Clock Shout, which I love. What's so wonderful about it, I think, is how a lot of people think of the orchestra as this sort of nameless, faceless, kind of anonymous wall. But this was a community of individual human beings. Everybody had to do their part separately. But it's written in such a way like a mini concerto for orchestra that everybody gets their moment to shine. I go back to Duke Ellington, who has been my role model, my influence, because he wrote for people. He wrote for people in his big band and he knew the personalities and wrote accordingly to that. And writing a Moja for the Philadelphia Orchestra, that very first time I saw them play, I got weak in the knees. I was, I was right at the edge of the stage and when the strings dug in, oh my God, I was about to all but pass out. But, <laughs> but that week of them working on the piece and working with Maestro Yannick Nazes again, really informed me the thought process behind how they interpret music and how their culture is. Whenever you have a community of people playing for a long time, they develop their own distinctive group sound. There was an article in the New York Times about that for String Quartet, I do remember, and how 
whenever there's a new person that comes in, the group sound still remains as if it were that distinct individual. That is what Philadelphia has. They already have the nuances and, and, and um, synchronicity of a chamber group. But to hear that informed how I would work on Seven O'Clock Shout. I knew that I only had two weeks to write that piece. And I thought about all the different factors. I thought about Erica Peel, the piccolo player. You know, I, I thought about Daniel Matsukawa, David Chang. You know, I, I thought about all the musicians in the orchestra informed from the moment that Umoja was premiered and, and working with them backstage, just the conversations that we had. So it just made sense to me that seven o'clock shot would be for them and in, in making it that they could be signing a birthday card, putting their signature on that birthday card, love letter to the world in this moment of solidarity. And we are human in all of this. This pandemic, you know, it's no longer the identity of an orchestra, but it's affecting all the individuals in between. So I felt it necessary to create a piece that said distinctively that. Oh, I wonder, you know, so everybody recorded their parts separately. You know, what was Yannick's role? How do, how do you conduct all these people separately. Kind of amazing, I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't quite know what the role of the conductor is in that kind of a piece. I don't know. I mean, were you in rehearsals with them for this? They had no rehearsals because they were all at home. Everybody was quarantined at that point. I do know the way that Maestro Yannick works is that he's a pianist. And so there are many times where he will work through a score via piano. So Seven O'Clock Shout had to have a piano reduction with it as well. He would conduct and send that video off to the other musicians. What I love about that is that everybody focused in on his movements and they knew those movements. They've come to interpret them as a unit, not individually. So it's no surprise to me that it came together as tight as it did. It was really exciting to see. And I think it was probably even more exciting to see people cheering and, and dancing and doing their thing <laughs> when it came time to the shout part. I, I felt it necessary to have that moment where people would lean out the windows and bang their pots and pans, so to speak. But the orchestra is going to play it all together on their opening concert. Like, how is that going to work? Yes. I actually sat in a rehearsal last week and I brought a few of my students here from the Frost School of Music in with me via Zoom conference. The orchestra looks like an orchestra on stage. They're spaced out and the woodwinds and brass and percussion, they're in the back and they have their own transparent partitions and they sounded fantastic. They didn't skip a beat. This is like an ongoing thing now with the Philadelphia Orchestra because our new program at New Music USA, Amplifying Voices, you're part of this program with the Philadelphia Orchestra. So you're gonna be writing for them yet again. Do you have any idea what you're gonna write for them yet or is it too soon to ask? It's too soon to ask, but I would say that the difference between this new work and the previous two is that they had functions coming in. I knew that Umoja was a piece that was already written, but it had to be expanded. And I knew that was going to be an opener for one of the concerts. I knew that Seven O'Clock Shout was the love letter to humanity that the Philadelphia Orchestra wanted to have. Um, what I didn't know was what position it would actually have within a concert. I'm so thrilled that it's going to open the first time that they're back. So this new piece, there are no parameters. And because of that, I have to define what the function is. 
And there's so many ideas that are going on in my head about what kind of function, but I do know it's a full-length work. And with that, I really want each and every single musician in there to shine. My real only parameter is to write for the people. And that's what I do anyway. Now, the other part of Amplifying Voices that's so exciting is in addition to writing all this music for the group, you also curated the repertoire for this group by commissioning all these composers who didn't previously write for a wind quintet and forever changed the repertoire. You have a role and a real you know, ability now to make a change in this repertoire that really has been this monolith. Composers can be anybody. And now is a chance to really show that and to pick repertoire that shows that. I'm very excited about Amplifying Voices because its title alone already to me says that it's going to amplify the voices of people that have not necessarily been heard or allows us to dive into various cultures in such a way that we haven't done before. So what I envision is working with young composers of color and helping them to find their voice and using the platform of these orchestras and also with incredible resources that the Philadelphia Orchestra provides, I think that that would make a huge difference. I hope that Amplifying Voices can be a vehicle for that kind of change and that kind of evolution. In a role as an advocate for other composers, what would you like to see? I would love to see the orchestra be a vehicle for which its symphonic voice reaches and communicates fully with the culture of this new generation. And it remains to be seen what that means in terms of actual sonorities, actual melodies, actual intervals, things like that. But I'm reminded of how Black children, they don't have that etude book that is based on their culture. I'm reminded of that for all different cultures in America. And I, I would love for the symphonic world to reach out in that way with new repertoire that is built around that. And I'm not talking about tokenism. I'm not talking about a nod towards of culture, but an actual blending of the culture into the symphonic repertoire. Something that is of the people. That means going to those composers who have been influenced and raised in their, in their cultures and are able to articulate that through their orchestrations and through their um, motifs. It's really all about identifying first and foremost. You're a passionate citizen and that comes across also in your music and to take it back directly into your music. I'm wondering, you know, the kinds of messages that you can send in the music that you create about the fact that loads of people play it now. Wish Sonatine. That piece has a very clear message in the very beginning, which is recited. And it's very effective. But of course, that's somebody reading words. And once you have music, then it's music. How do you translate that when it's just music and there aren't words? It starts with the performer and how they interpret and their understanding of what's going on, the story, the narrative behind it. They have to understand the story in order to become the storytellers. It's our responsibility to convey that story to the performer in such a way that is not cerebral, but external um, and brings them into that world. 
the program notes, the rehearsal notes, all of those things that go into publishing, which sonatine was crucial. You do have the poem that is by poet Fred Degar, who's out at UCLA right now. When I was writing the piece, I noticed that the poem is really, it's really short, but there's a lot in it. There's a lot of history that's embedded into it through his words, his carefully, beautifully chosen words. His storytelling made me want to dig into what the Middle Passage was, and in some cases kind of still is. And the one thing that I want to mention about Wishsonatine is it's about the tall ships. We know this from the poem, but what is being conveyed is the fact that you can smell the ships before you even see them because they've been trafficking people. And that means that those people were in there, in the ship, canned up like sardines, stacked up like sardines, nothing crueler, excrement, body odor, all of those things were happening. So you could smell, you could smell the death coming a mile away before you even saw it. And then this idea of how people were brought to the ship and the idea of what is a human experience when you are taken away from all that you know and love and you're being dragged by chains and you see this ship and right before you board, you think to yourself, this is my last chance of staying on my home soil where I was born. And you fight like hell before you're put on that ship. And so I decided to take a more literal approach to that. And putting that into the program notes, the idea of a mother who is about to have a child on the ship and she has that child in that moment of pure love, but then that sense of dread, that child is going to be thrown overboard because toddlers and, and babies, they were not tolerated on the ship. They were too much, too much to handle. You can't tell a child to stop crying if they're upset about something. You can't tell a child to behave. You cannot force them in that condition. You can subjugate an adult but it's harder to subjugate a child. And so they knew exactly what to do with children. And this mother who was like, hell no, I'm not going to let this happen, not without a fight. And then they both get thrown overboard. You can tell this is dark, but this was the reality. And when you put it to music and musical terms, it allows people to absorb even the darkest sides of human nature and convey it through the art because then you are grieving while you're playing. And that kind of grief is something that audiences know. We know grief through death. We're going through it right now with the pandemic. But the other thing that it conveys is the history of the blues, the history of all of these various cultures, these tribes being put onto a ship, spread apart because they didn't want any kind of mutiny to happen. But that difference of languages and rhythms and all of those things came together during the Middle Passage. So you hear elements of the blues at that moment that the mom has a beautiful child and she knows what's going to happen next. So I felt all of those things were necessary to put into Wish. And so it tells its own story. But I do feel it's necessary to verbalize that to the musicians so that they are clear on what their motivation is as storytellers, actors, actresses. Another really powerful piece of yours, Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes. That sent me down this giant rabbit hole when I discovered it, you know, learning that history because we're not taught that history. And so part of the role that the composer can be in creating a piece and giving it a title like that is creating awareness of this history. 
I think that that's the, the one of the biggest things besides the creative factor of being a composer it is the research, the historical elements of it. And everybody has their own different areas of interest in history. For me, it is people of color. I have to admit to you in elementary school, I got a D <laughs> in history because I, I didn't really care about the Battle of the Bulge. I know that I should have. I know, and I tried my best, but I didn't relate to it. I can talk to you about Black history any day of the week because there was some kind of connection there for me. And now looking back, of course, I'm, I try to absorb as much as I can. And Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes was something that came to me due to a very good friend who is you know, from Wichita, Kansas. Her and her family have been fighting for their rights. And they have proof of their family line being within the Dawes role. The Dawes role was literally the listing of people who were of mixed heritage within particular tribes. There were tribes that were recognized by the federal government as the civilized tribes. I mean, how about that for an insult, the civilized tribes? Um, but this idea of this voyage of the Trail of Tears and how it related to the Great Migration, which was, you know, happened after the emancipation, where Black people and Native Americans equally started to move west and outward around the country. For Native Americans, they were very much forced. There's this level of um, inhumane within one culture, but then there's also the level of hope within another culture. And it fascinated fascinate me in how these two cultures came together for this idea of migration. Now, at the same token, you have a wonderful piece that's just simply called Nanette. <laughs> yeah, for Wind Quintet and Spring Quartet, it's like there's no story behind it. Or maybe there is, and it's just a secret. Uh, it does not have a story. And that is one of the pieces that I was just writing at the time for the sake of finding sonorities and discovering new things. So to me, that is actually a piece that I do plan to, to go back and revisit and give it give it um, some purpose and definition. I so admit it. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, but maybe there's a backstory in there waiting to come out, you know, as it were, after the maybe. fact. <laughs> but in terms of this, you're obviously very intrigued by telling stories and you're fascinated by history and the storyteller, but you're telling it through this medium of instrumental music, which is, which is abstract, like a non-act. People hearing it, if they don't know the title, if they don't read the notes, they might not necessarily get the story unless you're writing, you know, vocal music or opera or choral pieces. I'm going into the training program of the composer librettist program at the Met in partnership with Lincoln Center Theater. I work with the dramaturge of the Met. I'm working on building an opera. So that is you know, my big project for the next few years. And I'm extremely excited about that. It's a, it's a whole new world for me because I've used instrumental, you know, instrumental writing as, as my vehicle, not necessarily by choice, but just because that's always been the way I've had that exposure. So now it really opens up a lot of things. And I, I was actually a vocal minor my first year in college. So I did perform in operas 
back in the day. So in a way, it's it's a beautiful return to that. And let's in, not forget the trio singing that you did with your sisters at the very beginning. It really did begin with the voice. And it makes sense. That's what we make music from first and foremost. What is the obligation of a composer to research these stories? Well, we all choose our own paths. And a composer doesn't necessarily have to choose any story to tell. That's just how I identify. And it's because of what what my ancestors have gone through. I feel it necessary to tell their story, but also really just embrace this idea of how I walk in the world and inform people around me. And, you know, there are composers out there that just want to write for themselves. And that's okay. (laughs) I'm not going to stop you from doing that. But for me, I feel that I have a purpose in this world. It has a lot to do with my faith. There are stories that are yet told that if they were told, they would transform all those who would hear them. It's my job to create music that allows that transformative power to happen. I try to write music that transforms, but if it doesn't come out that way, then I accept that too. (laughs) We're in this very transformative moment in the whole world, this very strange moment. You know, you're in in Miami, um, part of this new music community and teaching and balancing teaching and composing. How are you navigating this? And as an artist, as a composer, you know, where do you feel your view, your empathy, the ability to transform through your work, where can you play a role in this moment? We're learning how to adapt. And we're learning as both audience and artists, we're learning how to reconnect with one another. And for the arts, I'm just really amazed um, the the level of ingenuity and sacrifice that artists are undergoing right now to get their works out. If one were to create music for Zoom, what would that be? How would the rules of Zoom change the way we communicate or change the orchestration or even change the thing that throughout mankind that we've always worked towards whenever we play music. And that is the idea of playing together, note for note, beat by beat. We know that our heartbeat, we know pulse is the central part of who we are. Zoom and any other um, vehicle, Google Chat, destroys that notion. How do we adapt and create music around that anyway? So my focus has been on creating chamber music through this platform. I feel like it's a dam where it's holding a lot of water back, but there's all these holes that the water is rushing through and the holes are getting bigger and bigger. And so we composers are the force that's making these holes bigger and bigger. And pretty soon that dam is gonna break down. So what are we gonna write? And, you know, how are we going to play? And we got, we got other things. We got software that, that'll allow us, you know, the quack trips of, of the world. But at the end of the day, when a student wants to play a duet with their teacher and they only got Zoom between them, how's that going to work? Why not build repertoire around that? So are there, are there live concerts at all in Miami right now? Or is, it, is everything Zoom? Uh, There are some live concerts at the University of Miami. Uh, We just finished doing an orchestra concert, the first of the season. It was just strings, uh, Gerard Schwartz conducting, 
And the concert was dedicated to Greg Carty. He was a New York violinist, and he was a conducting fellow of Gerard Schwartz, who, who passed away unexpectedly during the pandemic. There was about 75 people in the audience that allowed people who attended this just this moment to not only experience music in person, but to also celebrate and collectively mourn the life of Greg. Uh, the New Deco Ensemble, they're doing their thing. New Deco Ensemble is a group that is merging genres in such a way that is pushing the envelope. Um, I've got a chance to play in the flute section for New Deco this past year. So I look forward to doing more of that work, but they have their, their concert season scheduled for the year in Miami Beach. And we're all finding ways of getting back out there and performing, but we also have to find ways of, of getting music to go through all platforms so that we will not be denied in our art and culture. You've been listening to a conversation with Valerie Coleman. I'm Frank J. O'Terry. For more interesting conversations and content, please visit newmusicusa.org. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and this is New Music Box. You're listening to Valerie Coleman's Umoja, performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra under the direction of Yannick Nézé-Séguin. Thank you.